What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 60 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded, pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. Today's episode is a very exciting one, listeners, and that's because, being episode 60, it marks five years of the Education Research Reading Room podcast. It's been a truly incredible journey so far and an absolute privilege to speak to world leaders in education for the past half decade. Thank you to everyone who's been a listener of the podcast and especially to those who support the podcast through Patreon. Your support has had a huge impact on my ability to keep the podcast sustainable over the years. And I've got a little thank you announcement for patrons about halfway through this episode. So stay tuned for that one. In this celebratory episode, we're speaking with Dr. Anita Archer. Anita is an educational consultant to school districts on explicit instruction. She has taught primary and secondary school students and is the recipient of 10 awards honoring her excellence in teaching and contributions to the field of education. Anita has served on the faculties of several renowned universities published numerous books about teaching and learning, and had a huge impact on education over her 55 years in the profession. Anita is actually the most requested guest for the ERRR podcast, which is why I thought it would be great to have her on for the five-year anniversary. And today we're discussing her hugely popular book, Explicit Instruction, Effective and Efficient Teaching. This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational, and this month I was very excited to receive from JCE a new book by Adam Boxer, Teaching Secondary Science, A Complete Guide. Adam Boxer is an incredible educator, and his blogs and writings have had a huge impact on me in recent years. And Adam has been working tirelessly to support teachers, and particularly science teachers, to have the knowledge and skills required to deliver quality instruction. One of Adam's great strengths is the specificity of his writing. He really does get right down into the nitty-gritty to show us teachers exactly what we need to do to become better. And Adam's new book is no exception. Within it, Adam breaks down the complex art of science teaching into its component parts and provides a concrete and comprehensive set of evidence-informed steps to help teachers have success in the science classroom. A truly complete guide. You can get this book from JCE at johncatbookshop.com and if you use the code ERRR30 at checkout, you'll receive 30% off Adam's new book as well as any other book from John Cat Educational. That code ERRR30 will also give you 30% off my book, Cognitive Load Theory in Action. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a sector-wide, evidence-based educational project that's having a massive impact here in Australia and is working directly with schools in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to thousands of classrooms in Australia. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast, to realise the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about the Catalyst project, including the professional development that they're running, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. 
Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 60 of the ERRR podcast with Anita Archer. Dr. Anita Archer, welcome to the Education Research Reading Room. It is a total delight to be here. You know, to be really honest, Oliver, for the last 10 years, I've spent significant time in Australia, and I wish I was there in person. But I'm bringing this from Portland, Oregon, on the west coast of the United States, and it is a delight to be with you. So the first question we ask, Anita, is if you meet someone new and they say, hi, Anita, what is it that you do? What's your answer? So I say to them, well, basically, I'm a teacher of teachers that uh, my whole career in its 55th year has been dedicated to ensuring that children have the very highest learning that is obtainable and that teachers know what we know from research makes the most difference in terms of learning. So I write books on instruction. I write curriculum materials that use the science of instruction to optimize learning. I do right now, usually I travel and speak and do presentations, but for 20 months, I have been a cloistered nun in my uh, office and home in Portland, Oregon, where I have been writing uh, books and curriculum. So that is what my life is, but basically it is a teacher of teachers. That's marvelous. We'll get a bit more into your story in a moment. But for now, a bit of a big question for you, Anita. What do you see is the purpose of school-based education? Well, of course, we gain education from our communities. We gain it from our culture. We gain it from our religion. Uh, but we have a very important, no matter if it's the United States or Canada or New Zealand or Australia, our goal is to be certain students have the skills, the knowledge, the strategies they need for their domestic life, their civic life, their profession, their job, that they have those skills which are not just obtained through other sources. And most of my work has been dedicated to foundation skills, that they would be able to read at the highest level and comprehend, read fluently and comprehend that they would be able to write, take their thoughts, put them in print and communicate, that they could speak in a way that communicated their ideas, that they would be able to calculate and have math skills that would allow them to solve problems, that all those bodies of knowledge are the domain of school-based education. And we must guarantee that all children have the highest level of learning in those areas. So we will never be without the need for school-based education. Fantastic. Could you tell us a little bit about your career to date, Anita? So we have to do a quick synopsis here because Oliver, 55 years, we've done a lot of things. And I'll just tell you some highlights. So as a child, I loved school. My family moved from, uh, we lived in seven communities before I went to college, and that's a lot of new schools. And so this sanctuary for my life was school. I loved to read. I loved to learn. I loved to, was curious, wanted to learn as much as I could. And then I went off to un university in the state of Washington, which is north, uh, on, also on the Pacific coast, uh, north of uh, Oregon. And that's where everyone in my family went. So that's where you went. And I got an undergraduate degree in sociology. But while I was there, and I was young, uh, 17, 18, 19, 
I was asked to be an assistant on some research projects that involved very explicit instruction of students that had developmental disabilities. Okay? And so I collected the data and helped summarize it. So I got that early interest. And then at that time, the first legislation in the United States uh, opened up the doors for having full education opportunities for students with disabilities. And so the same professors that I'd worked for suggested that I apply for a master's degree in special education. So I did that. I was married at the time and I got full scholarship to go to school in that area. And my first teaching was with students that were learning disabled. And in that time of having these beautiful children I worked with, I said to myself, if they had had the highest quality instruction early on, some of them would not have needed services. And my, so I became very interested in general ed research on what made a difference there. And that in the 70s, 80s, there was a lot of research on what did high teachers who had high outcomes with students do that we could transfer more generally to instruction. So I became interested in those attributes I had seen with children who were struggling that were similar to the research elements that made a difference in general ed classes. So, but you know, sometimes your course in your life changes with opportunities. And this was an odd opportunity. I was only 26 and a professor at it in a very good college of education died. And they asked me to become an assistant professor before I had my doctorate. So right away, 26, I was on university campuses teaching about instruction, particularly in regard to teaching reading and teaching language arts. I might just ask a, ask a little question there. What do you think it was about your 26-year-old self that made the, the, the faculty and the people making that decision think, oh, I think Anita would be really good and, and ready for this job, even though she hasn't got her doctorate already? Well, they had seen me in the master's program and teaching children because it became, I mean, even right away, it became a site for other uh, teachers to get trained. And I had work ethic and I constantly was polishing my practice and I was a very good teacher with excellent outcomes. And I already had done a great deal of speaking and presentations. I mean, it was a talk about a gift. Okay. And then from there, I went to Eugene, Oregon. First of all, my earliest work in special ed was with early behavioralists. Okay. So then I went to University of Oregon, got a job at University of Oregon. And there I was in charge of the reading center for the College of Education, still in my 20s. But there uh, was all of the direct instruction, Siegfried Ingelman, Doug Carno, who became and is still a very close colleague of mine. And so they were in one aspect of very direct instruction. So again, I'm studying, 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 studying. Then I go to San Diego State University. And there, there was a large number of English language learners. So now I'm reading all the research on English language learners. So if you just follow this, here's the thing about this pathway. Every single teaching behavior that made a significant difference with children who had disabilities, you will find in the research on teaching in general ed. 
you will find in the teaching of English language learners, concluding that good instruction is good instruction. I mean, uh, that you have an objective, that you do demonstration, that you have active participation, that you give feedback, you know, uh, you give adequate amount of practice. So, and at that time, in the early 90s, I was teaching in universities, but also teaching across, you know, I had by then taught in Perth, and I had taught in London, and I had taught in Canada, and so I decided that I would make more difference by writing more, writing more curriculum, and speaking uh, with people who really wanted to make a difference in terms of instruction. So from the 90s, that's what I've done, a combination of consulting countries, states, districts, and writing curriculum and writing about instruction and learning. So, yeah. Fantastic, Annette. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that story. It's a, it's a, a long and rich career. And one of the things or one of the things I thought was really cool about having you on today is that this episode is, as I mentioned to you, the five-year anniversary episode of the ERRR podcast, um, which is, you know, a pretty pretty exciting kind of milestone for me and hopefully for listeners as well, given that I, I had no idea when I started this thing that it would go for this long. But it's it's really nice that you were yourself in your 55th year of teaching. Um, so that's a, that's a really uh, a lovely kind of synergy there. And another thing I just wanted to pick up there, when I asked you what it was that when you were 26 helped you to get on that get that role, uh, you, one, one of the things you mentioned was kind of your attention to detail and your work ethic. I've got to, got to say to listeners, Anita is probably one of the most prepared guests for the ERRR podcast that I've seen because I always send through the, the questions beforehand and Anita came and I always say, you know, if there's anything you want to add or take out, let me know. And Anita really, really had attention to detail and essentially analyzed my questions as like a, a lesson plan and told me what we could add and what we could take out to make it an even better interview. So that, that attention to detail and that work ethic clearly continues even in your 55th year of teaching. Yep, every day. It's fantastic. So really the, the main topic of today's discussion is about explicit instruction and you talked about how you got, first got into it in some of those projects and collecting those data in your, in your early years in the profession. So I thought I'd just start with a, a broad question on this topic. What is explicit instruction? You know, first of all, everyone who looks at, goes in and looks at a teacher teaching knows explicit instruction and not explicit instruction. I mean, you look at it and say, oh, it's structured. Oh, it's unambiguous. Oh, it's direct. Those kind of adjectives uh, would be immediately seen. Now, the title of the book that I wrote with Charles Hughes on explicit instruction, we call it explicit instruction, colon, instruction that is effective and efficient. Effective because the biggest idea I would want to get across to all educators is to keep their eye on the outcome, which is learning. So often we get caught up in activities, we get caught up what seems like a good idea, but we forget the big outcome is what is the content that you've chosen that is learning. So in the bigger definition of explicit instruction, we uh, addressed uh, four categories of attributes uh, that makes it explicit instruction. Attention to the content. You're a math teacher. Are you teaching critical content? Do you break it down? into obtainable pieces, big ideas, and design of the lesson. Oliver, you tell them the goal of the lesson. You go back and review critical pre-skills that they need for today's lesson. You're introducing a new concept or a new skill or strategy. You do very intentional demonstration, and you also have, so content, 
design and delivery. You get responses. You monitor their responses. You give feedback to them. And you provide enough practice that they will learn it. And so it is content design, delivery, and practice. But it's effective and efficient. It's unambiguous. I, I love it. And I, I really love how you started that, which is that, you know, everyone, when they walk into a classroom, they know when, when something's explicit, when it's not. Because explicit is essentially, the word itself essentially just means, you know, easily recognized and clear from the outside, I guess, is, is perhaps one way of talking about it. And it's like, yeah, when you look at a teacher and you look at the students and you say, those students know what they're meant to be doing right now and they know how to do it because the teacher's made it clear to them that's explicit instruction. And when they don't, that's not explicit instruction. So that's, uh, I really like that. It's kind of like a, yeah, really good derived uh, definition there. Next question. How have you seen what the profession views as explicit instruction change, if at all, over your, your 55 year career? So we knew at the very beginning of my career and long before it, what were the most critical attributes of explicit instruction? in terms of breaking content, breaking it down, and the design of it in terms of demonstration, guided practice, checking for understanding. And we knew about the importance of getting responses and having space practice, deliberate practice, so forth. So right now, I am revising a program that's been widely used, and some in, the, in Australia, called Phonics for Reading. But I look back, the first contract I had for writing it was in 1984. Okay, and it had every aspect of that instruction in it. We had known this for a long time. We knew what good instruction was. We knew what would lead to learning. We knew what we needed to do. And so, how has it changed over time? What has changed over time is the constant strengthening of what we already knew in terms of increased research and how we might deliver it. So, for example, we've had quite a bit of recent research on opportunities to respond, which you're going to ask about later, but it's a really critical area. So many people have been looking at, well, what are average rates of opportunities to respond that we should have as a goal? What should be the balance between uh, calling on individuals and having everyone do it? So it's, what has happened is we had the big ideas. And then we have refined, 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 refined as more research on each of the questions was added. Mm. That's great. That's fantastic. And that's, I guess, the way we'd hope any field of research would develop over time. You establish key principles and you refine it. Yeah. Right. Any body of knowledge is sort of like the vaccines. I mean, people say, oh, they just happened so quickly. No, it was a long, I mean, from the 1800s, we've been studying how to do vaccines, got more and more and more, which set us up for doing something. It's, yes, it's the route of science. Hmm. Yeah, fantastic. And why, why are you such, I mean, I think feel like we've kind of covered this a little bit, Anita, but maybe you want to add something in terms of why you're such a big fan of explicit instruction. Well, we might start with the fact that it works. You know, I have worked with schools that have totally turned around the outcomes of the schools by being very intentional about their instruction. So let me give you an example. So I worked with an elementary school that had 90% free and reduced lunch, because so low social economic. 90% of the students spoke Spanish as their uh, primary language, okay? And so we give, in the state this occurred in, they give state tests. And after three years of implementation of very explicit instruction, 
90% of the students were above benchmark in reading and math. And they were in the top five schools, elementary schools in their state in math. Teaching helps. That's great. That's, I mean, that's a good answer. It, it works. So, I mean, uh, it works. And so people always ask, is it necessary for everything? I think this is important research too, Oliver, because I'm so asked it so often is when is explicit instruction particularly useful? And it really is a matter of this. It doesn't matter what age the learner is. It doesn't matter what domain they're learning. The question is, are they a novice? Are they fresh to algebra? Are they just going into geometry, your field? Are they just learning how letter sound associations? Are they just learning how to sound out words? Then they're going to profit the most from very explicit instruction. Because, you know, discovery always has two possibilities. You discover or you don't. And if I'm teaching really foundational information and you have no background knowledge, I need to set you up for optimum success. And explicit instruction is likely to do that. And so what's interesting, and Sharon Vaughn, who's a colleague I work with, we had this conversation recently, and she said, you know, no matter what you're teaching, someplace in there, there's something you should teach explicitly. That if you used discovery, they might have a misconception. They might not have enough background knowledge to uh, be able to gain it. So I always use the example, my COVID example, um, because I retook up my cello. And I had to get a teacher because I had no knowledge. I've never played a string instrument, didn't know about how to hold the bow. I didn't know uh, the notes. I didn't know the strings. I didn't know. And so I didn't have enough information, knowledge in order to discover cello playing. And I, I am an eternal beginner on cello, but yes. Fantastic. What are some of the biggest misconceptions that people have about explicit instruction, would you say? So one of them is that it's only necessary for low-performing, struggling students. Well, it's good for them, but if I was training you to be a teacher, wouldn't you like to have me demonstrate it and explain it and guide you in practice and have you practice it? Would that not be a miracle? And so that's one of the misconceptions. Basically, if I have a novice, if they have little background knowledge, Basically, I could teach them anything in the area of it. For this, I'll just use this last week, okay? High schools, which is for, you know, Australia would be students in grade 9, 10, 11, and 12, okay? Here, and I watched 15 and worked with 15 teachers on their lessons. And one lesson was on, which we taught explicitly, was how to write a coherent argument how to solve multi-step algebra equations, how to analyze the validity of a website, okay? Mm. And we could teach all of those explicitly. We analyze what you have to know. We model it. We practice it with you. We practice it with you. We practice it with you. We practice it with you, and then you do it. So those are not just foundation skills. Foundation skills, I would, I mean, I beg people to teach in Australia Teach directly letter sound associations. Don't hope that they will discover it. Teach them how to figure out unknown words. Teach them the morphographic elements of words. Teach them how to read fluently. Teach them comprehension strategies. Teach them vocabulary because those need to be, I mean, absolutely, but it's not just foundation skills. Those arguments, the multi step algebra problem, analyzing the validity of a website is not just foundation skills. 
So it's not just for struggling students. It's not just for foundation skills. It's for anything that you're learning for which you are not already an expert on. That's great. Well, lovely, clear definition there, Anita. I'm, I'm keen to get into some of the content from your book now because there were some things that I, you know, I've had several people over the years come onto the podcast and talk about explicit instruction. So it was, it was quite interesting actually reading your book because in many ways your work came before a lot of the other work that I'd I read and so much of it was familiar to me via other people even though it originally came from you. Lovely. You know, dissemination is my job. Totally. And so... However, we get explicit instruction from any path, I celebrate that. That's fantastic. But despite that, there were still a few things and interesting things that I found in your book that I kind of hadn't seen in other places, which I guess isn't that surprising. One of them was your emphasis on thinking about teaching in the form of if-then statements. Mm. Can you explain to listeners what you meant by this, Anita? So some things that we teach, sometimes we call them rules. Sometimes we call them relations. If this occurs, then this will happen. Now, I have to be careful because, you know, I have done a lot of training, Oliver, in Australia. And I will pull up an example like, okay, let me use an example of abbreviations. And immediately the people in Australia say, oh, we don't do it that way. And I say, oh, well, let me use this example uh, on spelling. Oh, no, we don't do it that way. So I keep ending up with non-examples just because yours is more in tune with much of the rules that would be taught within a British So let me just take an example. So, and I read that question and I said, well, let me take the example that I used with a teacher this week. And since you're a math teacher, I said, I even could use for Oliver a math example. So let's just, this one was a beautiful, perfect example. I mean, I could teach you how when you have a vowel consonant E and you want to add an E that begins with a vowel, you drop the E. Okay, that happens to go in both countries. But Let's do a math example. So here is the if-then statement. If you have three links and the sum of the two shortest links is greater than the longest link, then you can create a triangle, right? Okay. Now, so that is a if-then. If you have three links and the two shorter links, if you sum them, is greater than the longest link, then you can create a triangle. So I said to the teacher, what you want to do is start with an example, okay? So the teacher now, so we're going to go with whatever kind of unit that you wish. So I said, let's get an example, Uh, three, nine, four. Okay, so you're going to be my student. Three, nine, four, what is the longest one? Nine. Nine. Okay, Uh, and uh, three and four, what's the sum? Seven. And if you had... So three, uh, actually, that's a non-example that I started with because I went to the second one. Forgive me. All right. But anyway, so three, four is seven. So will you be able to form a triangle? Is that sum greater than nine? No. No. Can you form a triangle? No. So then I show you. Okay. So here's the length. Here's the length. And they can't come together. And so then I have 14, 8, and 3. 14, 8, and 3, and so what is the longest? 14. 14. And 8 and 3, what's the sum? 11. Is it greater than 14? No. Can we form a triangle? No. No. I have 6, 5, and 12. And uh, what's the largest one? 12. 12. I have 6 and 5. And 6 and 5 is? 11. 11. Can I form a triangle? No. 
No. Okay. So that's just an example from your own field of a perfect example of a if-then statement and how it would be best taught both with examples and non-examples. Now, I didn't want to go into the whole lesson because usually you'd present one or two examples, then intermix examples and non-examples in that discernment. Mm, that's great. Okay, listeners, a bit of a change from the, the standard podcast format. Yesterday, we actually conducted the interview, but today I'm back with Anita, and she's going to give us another example of this if-then approach. And that's because yesterday I put her on the spot a little bit, and I asked her for an example that she hadn't prepared for from literacy, from um, primary literacy. And so she wanted to come back today and uh, do a take two of that one with a really uh, an example she's thought a lot about. So over to you, Anita. Okay, thank you so much. And Oliver, I had a, a joyous time yesterday with you. But when we look at if-then teaching rules and relationships and concepts in early literacy, I wanted to augment what I did yesterday to ensure that people had the big ideas. So everybody who's participating, including Oliver, you need paper and pencil nearby. Got it. Okay, and I want you to do this. I want you to write down the word bake, put a plus sign, put ing equals baking, B-A-K-I-N-G. Okay, so I just picked a rule out here that uh, at least the spelling rule for American Australia is the same. This is good uh, because some of our basic rules uh, in grammar and spelling differ. So this is the if-then for this one. If you have a word that ends in a vowel consonant E, and you're going to add an ending that begins with a vowel, like I-N-G, then you drop the E to spell baking, okay? So if you have a vowel consonant E and you want to add an ending with a... E. Vowel. So, say that again. If you have an ending that begins with a vowel, a consonant, and an E, and you want to add an ending that begins with a... Vowel. Vowel, then you drop the E, okay? Now, here's what I left out that I wanted just to go through again. And that is, before I can even teach this, I have to say to myself that I need two things. I need examples that are consistent with it, but I need a full range of examples because teaching rules is meant to generalize so that you could afterwards use it and generalize it. So for example, I had bake with an A. Now, if all the words have A final E, A final E, A final E, then the students think, oh, I just apply this when there's A final E. What about O final E? What about I final E? Or let's say that all the words end in ing, 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 ing. They think, oh, I only have to use this when it's I-N-G. So I have to have a range of them. I have to think about this before I ever teach it. So for example, I wrote down these possibilities. Hope plus ing, slice plus E-R. That one's particularly tricky because you still end up with an E, right? Fame plus O-U-S. Oh, this is very good. The kids know the word famous. Now they're going to know it comes from fame plus O-U-S. So those would be excellent examples because they represent a whole range of examples, right? But you cannot teach if then. The conditions lead to an outcome without non-examples. So the art of the teacher is looking at non-examples where you stop and say to yourself, okay, for that rule, what are the critical attributes that would not be in place in a non-example? So you say to yourself, well, one of those attributes is the word has to be combined with an ending that begins with a vowel, right? All of those examples had an ending that began with a vowel. So now I need some where they have a 
vowel consonant E, but the ending, the ending I'm adding is going to begin with a consonant. So for example, timely. All right. So the only difference is you don't drop the E because the ending begins with a consonant. Niceness. You don't drop the E because the ending begins with a consonant. Oh, this one's good though. Remember how we had hoping in our examples? Now we're going to have hopeful. So the kids don't automatically think with hope, I always drop the E. No, the ending begins with a consonant. So I end up with hopeful. Okay. So that's one of the attributes in the rule that the ending began with a vowel, the non-examples don't. But there's another attribute. The other attribute was the word has to end in a vowel consonant E. What happens when it does not end? Still ends with E, but a vowel E. For example, seeing, S-E-E-I-N-G, plus I-N-G equals seeing. The other attributes you've got to think about, or agreeing. Oh, that's a good one. So that you don't, the, the ending begins with a vowel, but you don't drop the E because it's not a vowel consonant E. So this is the kind of thinking we have to do. Of course, I also have to pick words that they can read so that they, that would be another thing that would be critical for all these spelling words. So then, once you got that down, then you can line them up. And in the research on examples and non-examples, they generally started with two examples, at least and then interspersed non-examples. But you see, it's that discernment. Are all the conditions in place so that we get an outcome? Okay, so I'm going to lead you. You're my only student, but everybody at home say the same ideas, okay? And you're going to have to pretend, though. So again, I'll present the rule. When you have a word that ends in a vowel consonant E, and you want to add an ending that begins with a vowel, you drop the E. So here I have bake. It has a vowel, A, consonant, K, and an E. And I'm going to add I-N-G, begins with a vowel. So I drop the E. So spell baking with me, Oliver, B. B-A-K-I-N-G. Excellent. I have the word hope plus I-N-G. Does hope end in a vowel consonant, E, Oliver? Yes. Does the ending begin with a vowel? It does. It does. Do we drop the E? Yes. Yes. And spell hoping with me. H-O-P-I-N-G. Excellent. Here I have uh, hope plus full. Uh, and hope, does it end in a vowel consonant E? Yes or no? Yes. Yes. Does the ending begin with a vowel? No. Will, will we drop the E? No. So the word is hopeful. Spell hopeful with me. H-O-P-E-F-U-L. Excellent. I have the word agree plus ing. And does agree end in a vowel consonant E? No. No. Does ing begin with a vowel? Yes. Yes. But even though it begins with a vowel, we don't have a word that begins in a vowel consonant E. So do we drop the last E? No. No. Spell agreeing. A-G-R-E-E-I-N-G. So here's the big ideas. You need a range of examples. You need a range of non-examples. And the non-examples are chosen because they're missing one of the critical attributes in the examples. So this takes preparation. But also, it shows that learning these if-then relationships where all the conditions have to be in place for the outcome takes planning. Mm. 
thanks for the opportunity for me to fix this part up. Thanks, Anita. And now we'll, we'll jump back to the, uh, the present, the present and uh, continue with the interview. Excellent. Great example. And a couple of other things really came out to me then as well, Anita. The something that's really crucial and explicit instruction and a trap lots of teachers fall into is is around economy of language. Many teachers find it really tempting to give extra detail, extra information, and from you know a cognitive load perspective, but also a common sense perspective, keeping it tight and just to the things that you're trying to teach is absolutely crucial. And I, you, in one of your webinars that I was watching in preparation for this interview, you used a great phrase, which was teach the stuff and cut the fluff. Which right. <laughs> nice. But that goes for the overall content as well as the internal content of what you're doing. I mean, here's, here would be non-teaching, okay? Mm-hmm. Okay, let's look at this example. Bake ends in a vowel consonant E, and you want to add an ending that begins with a vowel. Uh, and so you're going to drop the E, and you'd have the word baking. Now, this is such a useful word to learn because throughout your life, you're probably going to do some baking and at least now you'll be able to spell it correctly. And now when you watch those food shows, you'll be able to spell, oh, they spelled baking. That's the British baking show and they spelled it correctly. And that is just exactly what we'd want to do here. But some words, we wouldn't want to do that. And so let's look at the word seeing. Now, maybe you are seeing that. Oh, God. Uh, So, you know, here's one of my because you've read cognitive science, and I actually spent a good deal of time reading cognitive science when COVID hit, because I hadn't had time to read all my books on. And my conclusion was was this, what you think about is what you learn. Mm -hmm. What you think about is what you learn. If I want you to think about these critical attributes in this spelling rule, I need to have all your attention there. If I want you to think about triangles and about the three sides and are the two when you add them together greater than the other side, then you can have a triangle. I've got to keep asking questions that keep you looking at those critical attributes. Mm, love it, Anita. All right, let's let's move on to I do, we do, you do. Now, something I was very interested to find find or discover was that this term comes from you you came up with I do, we do, you do, which is essentially the, the mantra of all explicit teaching around the world. How, how, did you, how did you come up with this? Look for the origin story of the I do, we do, you do. It's very, very exciting. The origin story of that wording. Okay, so look back into the early 70s, 60s and 70s, and probably the premier teacher trainer in the United States was Madeline Hunter. Now, you read Madeline Hunter's book, she talks about demonstration, guided practice, checking for understanding. Then I go to University of Oregon, and there we have the direct instruction people who use the terms, parallel terms, model, lead, and test. And so one of the very first training materials I wrote with a group of colleagues, one of the things I've always felt is, let us get language that is memorable, that you will never forget. And I said, well, basically, demonstration or model is a, I do it, the teacher. Guided practice is, I'm going to lead you through it, is a, we do it. And checking for understanding or test is a, you do it. Perfect language for the progression of almost any lesson. I do it, we do it, you do it. That's wonderful, Anita. What are some mistakes or, or traps that people often fall into when they're doing the I do, we do, you do? Well, here's the biggest challenge. And that is, I do it, you do it. That's the most common path. 
see it all the time in math teachers. Watch me do one. Now you do it. Do set A, B, C, and D. See you at the end of the period. And, but the redo it is the powerful part. So that's one that is a, a big challenge. Another challenge is that the actual, you know, you've had, you've taught in a number of years. I've taught many years. Both of us and every participant here can remember that one day they taught a lesson that was like brilliant, that they gave the objective, that they had review, that they did dynamite demonstration with total clarity, that they used the same uh, language that they used in the instruction to guide the students in applying it. And they had gradual release of responsibility as they applied it. And then they had it do them on their own and they did brilliantly and you gave them practice. But every one of us have had a lesson that you just hope that the principal of your school is not visiting, that it just wasn't your tip-top one. So all of us, it's not like a mistake. It's like lacking polishing. So I just wrote down, what do I see that often doesn't happen on the I do, which is basically you show and tell how students how to do it. And I'd say it's mostly lack of clarity, that the demonstration simply isn't clear. and in terms of guided practice, where I guide you through doing it. It is lack of clarity also, but it's lack, it's lack of doing it at all. Going right to you do it is a big one. And then the you do it, I need to really check your understanding before you do it independently. And that's the purpose of it. So it's sort of lack of polish. Okay, can I just tell you, though, one of the things that I've observed in these 150 I do not understand this, but I see teachers constantly starting with asking a question. Does anybody know how to change one fraction to an equivalent fraction? Now, there's two problems there. One, kid raises his hand and says something where it is not accurate. It's a misconception. Well, what is to say that some children won't attend to the misconception? Or the teacher calls on a student, they have a brilliant answer. If you have a fraction and you multiply it by one, then it has the same value. And if you understand that one is where you have a denominator and a numerator, a numerator that is the same, thus it will be equal to one. So you could multiply it by four over four or a hundred over a hundred or a million over a million. And it will not change in value because it's equal to one. And when you multiply by one, it doesn't change the value. And the teacher says, oh, my God, they know it. I'll just move on. So that's the one that just drives me nuts is if maybe some students have some background knowledge in it, but you have two potential challenges here, a misconception that's being spread or a answer that you're making a wrong conclusion on, they have it. Mm, totally. So given that, because I'd say maybe that's a way that a few teachers would kind of check for prior knowledge, right, and to see how to, how to target things. So, so if they're looking for a replacement to kind of asking around, how would you suggest teachers check for that level of prior knowledge? I wouldn't go fishing in the crowd to figure out. I'd say we're going to do three items on this Monday that will give me an indication of your background knowledge that will allow me to adjust my lessons. I have written down three questions. Please answer each of those questions, including write three fractions that are equivalent to two-thirds. Okay, no worries. And I make it very clear that it is to give me information on how I can go forward. That's very different than answering it 
globally in front of the class and having all the other students pick up on the information yep. or making the wrong decision from one child. There I'm using the whole class and I could say, hey, they're very solid on this. The this was taught last year and they're still solid on it. This they have no idea and no idea. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Coming back to the we do, because you said it's the crucial part, but also the part that teachers often miss out. Maybe maybe teachers and listeners would benefit from a bit of an exploration of different ways that it could look to do a we do. So I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, what you did with me before when you were kind of stepping me through every part of the process, that's a great example of a we do because you were really just guiding me, essentially holding my hand and working my way through each of the steps of that process. Are there any other really effective ways, apart from that kind of sequential questioning at each step of the process that you've that you've seen really help with the we do? So basically, a we do is heavily scaffolding. You need the teacher's scaffolding to get you to the outcome. Eh? And so it might be through step one, do it. Step two, do it. Step three, do it. It might be from here are the steps that I just modeled. Uh, let's do one together. Now you follow the steps. So that could be the scaffolding. But it's basically saying, I want you to have success from the get-go. Uh, and you need scaffolding. So we do it is basically answering the question, does the students need my support in order for them to be accurate, for them to be successful? Yeah, fantastic. And it, yeah, it's another approach, I guess, would be faded faded examples where you kind of do most of the example and leave a, leave apart from the do, then leave apart two parts from the do. That's, and even as you ask the questions, going back to the spelling one, I could first ask you, as I did, does it have a vowel? Does it have a consonant? Does it have an E? Does the ending begin with the vowel? Then I asked you, does the word end in a vowel consonant E? Mm. Right? So more responsibility on you. Mm. Okay. So the first example you could, which you, which you actually, yeah, you did. The first example, you ask each individual question, each, each letter. And then the, set, the next one, you reduce the support a little bit and say, does it end up in with this? And then the next one, it could be, does it have the correct ending to apply this rule, for example? And then you and could. And then I could say, don't forget the rules yep. uh, about the E and the first letter of the. So that, yes, there could be a gradual release of responsibility. But the whole thing from demonstration to guided practice to checking for understanding is a model of gradual release of responsibility. And within it, you could have in the we do it even a greater gradual release of responsibility. That's great. The next thing I want to talk about was um was the idea of frequent responses. Yes. <laughs> why why is this so important, Anita? Well, it is definitely you know anything that you read of, that I've written or any of the webinars I put this as number one for schools to focus on opportunities to respond. But okay, let's start with effect sizes. Okay? So research studies that have uh, been done on actual opportunities to respond, have found that as the responses go up, so doth on-task behavior. As the responses go up, so doth learning. As the responses go up, distractions and dis inappropriate behavior goes down. Those are big wins. And if we just look at the, the mega analysis, and they looked at the uh, effect size, which you know go from zero to one, 
Well, consistently, they come out about 0.79. That's an astonishing effect size. I mean, it makes a difference. It makes a difference in elementary and middle school years and high school years. It makes a difference in college. You went to college, and I bet that you were in some classes that lasted two hours with no responses. Yep. Good opportunity to check your phone. Uh, many, lots of time to check your phone. Uh, and so I saw that yesterday as the responses went down in high schools, the phones came out. So uh, it, to me, you are, just think about it. Every time you make an academic response, you are rehearsing information. You are practicing information. And much of the time you're actually retrieving the information. And so wouldn't that make a difference? So. If learning is our outcome and it's not getting through activities, no matter what grades you're teaching, no matter what domain it is, they step through your doors. They step through your doors for the purpose of learning uh, and it's going to be better accomplished with frequent responses. So what are some of the different ways that uh, teachers can can garner frequent responses from students, Anita? You know, so let me just reflect back on the last few weeks. So a teacher may have a response that's short and same and say everyone and have them say the answer. The teacher might say, think about this, prepare your answer in writing, now share your answer with a partner, and then I randomly call on a student. The teacher could utilize partners or teams for cooperative responses. The teachers could have students write what was interesting, because uh, you teach high school. We went through our high school videos, and one of the things we found is when the teacher gave the students preparation time to write down their answers before they shared with the partners or before they shared with the class, the quality went way up. And so, and I'll just kind of use a math example. So in a geometry class, the students had a written problem and they had to figure out first what were the situation attributes, like what was this measurement, this measurement, and this measurement that they were going to use with their trig functions and geometry knowledge, okay? And the teacher said, in one class, we had two lessons. One class, the teacher said, I'm going to give you time to reread this to yourself, underline those critical attributes, and make a list of them, okay? Teacher moved around the room, circulated and monitored, gave feedback, gave encouragement. And then the teacher said, now share with your partner what those critical attributes were. Now look up here and check it against my list. And the kids did a brilliant job. And the next class, the teacher, same lesson. Here's a story. Here's a situation that we're going to analyze and have problems to uh, apply. And then immediately said, uh, what's one attribute that you thought of? And kids raised their hands. But the quality of the answers were weak because they did not have preparation time in writing. So this is this is my current thing, uh, one of my current things that I'm really watching uh, to see how powerful it is in high school. I, I saw this in another class where the teacher said, you've evaluated yourself on this essay. It's a narrative essay. You valued yourself on this uh, and four critical attributes that we went through, turn the page over and write a summary of what you thought in your own story was high quality that and why, or low quality and why, on that rubric, and then gave them time to do it. They wrote it down. They prepared. They thought about it. Now share it with your partner. Quality of answers went way up when we give them a chance to think and write it down so we can hold them accountable. But anyway, you were asking me 
So choral responses, partner responses, written responses. I love holdups. Uh, holdups have some of the very best research. And so you have generic answers like yes or no, or agree, disagree, or multiple choice A, B, C, D, and they hold it up. And it's even better if you go one step further, uh, tell your partner why you chose that answer. But it keeps everybody involved. And Oliver, that's our challenge is keeping everybody involved and accountable. And holdups do that. So there's, you know, it's gestures. So I taught one lesson where the kids had submerge and emerge, and we had to do the gesture with it. Your hand goes down to submerge and it comes up to emerge. And the kids remembered it longer. So what are the best ways to respond? Well, at least if we look at the research, about uh, at least this balance needs to occur. About 70% of all responses should involve everybody. Everybody says it. Everybody holds up the response card. Everybody writes it. And about 30% of expert teachers might be calling on individuals, but non-volunteers. You know that I watched 15 lessons this week on high schools, 9, 10, 11, 12. Not one teacher had kids raise their hand and call them volunteers because it's an unequitable response. The highest performing, most assertive students, most proficient in English raise their hands. I don't know if that answered your question, but any response that lets them rehearse, lets them practice, and really lets them retrieve information from memory, hallelujah. That's great. And, and you mentioned hold-ups there. I'll, I'll attach an image. I'll actually attach a link to the webinar as well. I watched you give this webinar um, online and you had people ha- set up an A4 sheet and on one, one edge it said agree, disagree, and the other said it yes, no, had A, B, C, D along the another side and something else on the other side. So I'll share a picture of that because I thought that was a really cool kind of a way to have a template for a holdup, which, which you call them, but essentially just a way for students to respond quickly and also in a way that other students can't necessarily see in the classroom. Right, they touch it first and then hold it up. Yep. Uh, response sheet's one of the most effective holdups. Mm, that's great. Good job, Oliver. Yep, love it. Dear listeners, a brief break in our program for an exciting announcement. Firstly, as you know, this episode marks a five-year anniversary of the ERRR podcast. I didn't want to let our half-decade celebration pass without a fanfare and without acknowledgement of the vast amount of wisdom that's been shared by guests of the ERRR podcast over the years. So I've been working really hard for many months to bring together insights from the ERRR podcast in a form that will make these insights even more accessible. That is, I've put together an ERRR book. Over seven chapters, I share insights on behavior management, motivation, regulation and relationships, explicit instruction, leadership, reading and evaluating education research, and the important topic of questioning the status quo within education. If you're a long-time listener of the ERRR podcast and you'd like a memento of these first five years, or if you're a new listener looking for a quick way to orient yourself to the best of what the last 59 episodes has to offer, this forthcoming ERRR book is a great way to do this. I'm also excited to announce that all those patrons who support the ERRR podcast with the average donation of $5 per month will receive a 100% discount on this forthcoming ERRR book. That's right. All $5 patrons will get a free copy of my forthcoming book with the only payment required being for postage. I'm actually personally buying these copies of the publisher, John Cat, as a gift to all $5 patrons to say thank you for your support so far as your ongoing patronage really does help the ERRR podcast to keep on keeping on. 
Now, that 100% off offer is for all who donate the average $5 per month, but all other patrons get a huge benefit too, and they will be receiving a unique discount code for 50% off the cover price. So if you've been thinking about supporting the ERRR podcast through Patreon for a while and you just haven't quite taken the plunge as yet, now is a fantastic time to take that step. There will be a cutoff date for this deal, so it's best to get in quick. So to sign up and get 50 or that 100% discount off the forthcoming ERRR book, go to patreon.com forward slash ERRR. And as always, patrons this month will also receive a summary of this fantastic discussion with Dr. Anita Archer, and this month's summary will include such important ideas as teaching in terms of if-then statements, how to create non-examples based upon critical attributes, the most common errors that teachers make during I do, we do, you do, and how to avoid them, methods for checking for understanding like hold-ups, and much, much more. Again, for 100% off or 50% off the forthcoming Interpolar book and a summary of this month's podcast, just go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R. That's patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to support the show. Now, back to this episode of the Interpolar podcast with Anita Archer. Some questions from listeners, Anita. One from, or a couple from Bron Rari Jones. First one is, um, what do you think is the most important aspect of explicit instruction to teach beginning teachers? So luckily in my career, I taught a lot of uh, beginning teachers. And now if I had to go back, because I've, the last 30 years, I've learned even more, super more. But the first thing I would instill in them is your teaching and the outcome you're going for is learning. And you cannot take your eye off learning. You have to teach the right stuff. You have to teach it to mastery. You have to provide enough practice that they will learn it. And the way you value, you judge your own teaching is, did they learn it? That seems so simple. Yeah. I mean, it's like teaching a stockbroker. It helps if you uh, sell more stock. I could, a doctor, more people live. Yeah. <laughs> Teachers, more kids learn. Mm. But we, we get, you know, you pick up books on how to teach. And they're filled with activities, but they have forgotten the outcome. The outcome is learning. And then I would say, here's the thing about our profession. There are teaching behaviors that are more likely to lead to that outcome. There are teaching behaviors and practices that lead to the outcome. And as a beginning teacher, your job is to know the biggies, the big ones that make a difference and implement them. And then to constantly polish up your practice, polish up your practice. Keep your eye on the learning. They're not learning. Oh, my demonstration had no clarity. Oh, I didn't get enough responses. Well, they forgot it. Why? I didn't have any space practice. Ah, keep polishing your practice. But they would have to understand learning is the outcome. Teaching is the path. And we know the pathway. And we need to use our best knowledge our students deserve to learn. You know, we have often forgotten this big idea. It's not just like at the end of the term, did they learn it? It's like every moment in the class, every lesson that you teach. That's great. Next question from Aileen, and Aileen was one of the the many people who who requested you as a guest for the ERRR, Anita. And as I mentioned in my invitation to you to come onto the podcast, you've actually been the most uh, requested guest over the last five years. So I'm blessed. Thank you. It's wonderful, wonderful to have you on. But Aileen, who, who, who said you met her through um, Esther Friedman, actually, and she asks, I work in a very balanced literacy inner city multilingual K-5 to school, and it's a real struggle for me as a SLP. What's an SLP? Speech and language 
pathologist. Yeah, okay, got it. Recently, my new principal is proposing more student choice uh, and a colleague of mine quipped like the blind leading the blind. I would love to know Anita's position on choice and if there is any research behind it. Choice now seems synonymous with equity and cultural responsivity. And I'm unsure about this association from, from a research standpoint. Could Anita perhaps comment on this? Well, you're in Australia. So I said to myself, well, you have one of the premier re- persons who reviews research brilliantly with his team, uh, John Hattie, uh, and then looks for what can we conclude from many, many studies on the same issue. So I, s- I said, well, uh, I will just grab John Hattie's summary as it relates to explicit instruction. So he has variables and again, effect sizes from zero to one with the area of desired on effect sizes. The desired effect sizes would be 0.4 and above. Okay. So, and this is a little chart that I used in a recent training from 2019. And I apologize to John Hattie if he has published a more recent one. This was pre-pandemic. So many, many studies reviewed and, and effect size emerges. So we start with explicit instruction procedures. Ah, above 0.4, 0.57. Direct instruction, 0.59. Mastery learning, 0.61. In other words, any way that we would look at explicit instruction from those three viewpoints, all are above 0.40. But then when we look at it internally, there's attributes. For example, do you set a goal, 0.51? Do you have clarity? in your communication of the objective, of the demonstration, of the steps in the guided practice, 1.09. Do you ever ask questions and get responses, 0.48? Do you give feedback, 0.66? Do you provide deliberate practice that is goal-oriented, 0.79? Do you provide rehearsal through having them respond, 0.65? Do you have spaced practice over time, 0.65? Do you have them retrieve information, 0.46. Do you provide scaffolding during, for example, during we do it, 0.58. Okay. In other words, there's not one element that we've identified a critical aspect of explicit instruction that had an effect size above 0.40. Okay. So then some comparisons. Student control over learning. I pick the objective, how I might approach it, what I might do. Ready? Point zero two, close to death. But even discovery-based learning. Now, sometimes the even his effect sizes vary over time because he adds different studies to the totality that he's looking at, and these are means of those. So discovery-based teaching, point two one, problem-based learning, point three five. So choice. Uh, let's say choose, students choose not to work on reading. Choose not to learn about math equations. Choose not to learn how to spell. We're doing them a disservice. We're the experts. We know what you need to know in order to have a family life, a civic life, and a work life. So when I looked at the motivation for students, some narrow choice appears in some studies to be reinforcing, and broad choice appears not to. Can I give you an example? You went to college, and the prof says, Oh, you can write about any issue in education. You spent your entire time trying to figure out, well, what would this prof like? I wonder what people wrote about in the past that got 
uh, high grades, high marks. And so you spent a lot of time out there searching for what kind of thing you were going to choose. But if the teacher said narrow choice, these are the three major topics we're going to explore, and you can pick one that would it be of interest to you that you would expand? Narrow choice often is quite motivating. Broad choice is actually not. Okay, that's one way to look at this. Let's look at it another way. For any problem that you have, and I would suggest that you read, uh, Hattie has responded this question, and so has Dylan William, uh, a Brit, okay? And you probably know both, I mean, know of both of those. Yeah, they've both been on the podcast. Excellent. Beautiful. Okay, so, but both of them remind us that for solving any problem, you need knowledge. So any problem needs knowledge. So let me just give you something this week that happened, okay? In my house, a few days ago, I was, oh, I woke up in the middle of the night and I heard this noise in the wall next to me in this old house. And it was loud, and I knew right away, woo, critter, possibility, okay? So I said to myself, what do you know about critters? Well, you, you could identify a squirrel, you could identify a mouse, and you could identify a rat. That's all my knowledge. I have no idea about the habits of any of those animals that would lead to them being in my wall. None, none. I could not solve that problem. I had to get critter control over here. And they walked right in and said, these are the steps that we do in order to solve this problem. And this is the knowledge we have about the best ways to handle this. And I said, well, thank you, because I have no knowledge on this. I could not solve the problem. Only thing I knew to solve the problem is to call my friends and say, what is the best critter control people in Portland, Oregon, and call them. That was it. So we're missing out a lot here in terms of... If we want the kids to solve a problem, first of all, they do better with narrow than broad. Uh, and they do significantly better with knowledge before they do that. So we have to put this in perspective. And I want to talk about another issue here from this question. Choice equated with equity. I'm concerned. To me, we have a responsibility to be the professionals who know what students need to learn in order to be competent adults as they leave us. And we are responsible for ensuring everyone has that knowledge that empowers them. That is equity. And so we have to be terribly respectful of our students. They come in with diverse backgrounds. All of us have them, diverse families, diverse economic levels and populations. But our responsibility is like going to the doctor. They're uh, taking all types of people into the doctor's office, but their responsibility is to know so much about their profession that they can give us the best advice that maintains the highest level of health for everyone. That's equity. So it's a red flag to me. Children might even say they like choice better than a structured curriculum. Teachers might even say they like it better but it might not end up with the outcome that we're responsible for. Thanks, Nita. That's a very, very well thought through and, and, uh, and thorough answer. I really, and I'm, I'm sure Eileen or Aileen, sorry, Aileen, I don't know how to quite, <laughs> if it's an Eileen or an Aileen, um, and I'm sure Aileen will be really happy and appreciative of that answer as well. One, one thing follow up, as a follow-up there, listeners, as mentioned, I had John Hattie on a few years ago now. Uh, listeners might like to go back to, the deep dive I went into with John Hattie 
and Adrian Simpson on in episodes 17 and 18 around the around the meta analysis and and effect sizes and things like that. So if, yeah, if people want a little bit more detail on that, that's something they can listen to. Terrific, Oliver. Yeah, yeah, that's a few more resources on that side of things as well. Another listener question for you, Anita. Um, this is from Andrew Beatish. To what extent does explicit instruction prepare students for a world that is a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous? You know, uh, first of all, I bet that everybody across history have thought they were in a time that was volatile, uncertain, complex, and uh, ambiguous. Don't you think? Yeah. At any moment, you know, uh, that each group might conclude that. I mean, look at the Industrial Revolution. Oh, my gosh, it's volatile, it's uncertain, it's complex, it's ambiguous. Okay, so certainly that occurred uh, during this pandemic. But isn't it the same thing as uh, my uh, discussion about equity? In order for you, and I can I just use my experience? Okay, so we are in a time, which is when COVID came, and I was in New York City, and I wasn't feeling well before it really was news, and so I flew back to Portland. And I didn't have a positive test because there was none available, uh, but I knew that my whole life had changed at that moment. Now, because I just wrote these down, because I'm a reader and I have that competent skill for my schooling. I'm a writer because I have the competent skills and more practice than you can imagine, that I have skills of gaining new information and studying. I have uh, mathematics strategies that I have to constantly upgrade. I can utilize technology very well, different kinds of technology. I have skills of speaking. I have a growth mindset, believing that I can learn new things. I have values like worth ethic and kindness. And so I am equipped to handle volatile, uncertain, complex, ambiguous events. And now, and as a result, that is what we're giving, uh, goes back to do you think school-based instruction is important? Well, because those are the kinds of skills that I emerge with that makes me resilient, that makes me flexible, that makes me be able to utilize that information. And if we want a society in Australia or the United States, these kinds of skills, they need the thinking skills. So does explicit instruction lead to this? Well, explicit instruction, if it teaches this content, leads to it. And it's the most effective and efficient way to teach that content. Thanks, Nita. Another question from from another listener, Al Walker. Al wants to know, I'd love to hear if COVID has delivered any new insights into explicit instruction for Nita. Well, absolutely, because I'm not traveling in the world. I have a huge library of books, more than 5,000 books in my library downstairs in the basement. And so I had plenty of books to read. So did you learn anything more over this time? Yes. But here's what I really learned. So many of your schools, uh, Oliver, was your school fully in session with children present through all of the COVID? No, no way. No way. Okay. So, and that didn't happen in the large urban districts that I was working with either. So I did webinars to train teachers to do remote instruction. I trained them to do hybrid instruction where some of the kids were at home, some of them were in class. I taught them as they were returning to schools to optimize in-person teaching. And what I was reminded of is good instruction is good instruction. 
So if I'm teaching a remote lesson or an in-person, I tell them the objective. I have demonstration. I have guided practice. I have checking for understanding. So that's one thing I learned. The next thing I learned was what I already mentioned to you by reading all the books I could find and, and order into ordering way too many books. But on cognitive science, I concluded what you think about is what they learn. So I started watching videos and stopping it and asking myself, which is a great thing for teachers to do, videotape themselves and say, what are they thinking about now? What would they be thinking about now? Is that what I want them to be thinking about? Because what they think about is what they're going to learn. Oh, I stop here. It was an amazing practice that made me watch my videos myself and say, Anita, are they thinking about what you would want them to think about? So, and certainly... I had even greater regard for teachers. My whole career has been dedicated to teachers. And it was difficult. It was difficult to get through the pandemic. It required that you be more explicit. Teachers who tried to get through their class just being on the energy of their humor and interaction. Oh, my God, I can't do that. It's not going to work here. I have to be more explicit. And so teachers... Uh, had an awakening and they could watch their own lessons with more ease because they recorded them every day. So they could go back and say, oh, that wasn't very clear. Oh, I didn't give enough practice. I didn't have them make a response. So that was necessary for me just to get reinforced. The last thing I wrote down as I prepared for this was if ever I knew the power of opportunities to respond, it was uh, during COVID. I've always said learning is not a spectator sport. And by goodness, it wasn't remote or in person. Yeah. So, but the big idea just reinforced what we know about instruction is powerful enough across different platforms, different situations. That's great. So today we've talked a lot about the kind of accumulative refinement of of explicit instruction and of the research over the years. But sometimes also things happen that kind of create a paradigm shift or cause people to change their mind or realize that something they held to be true before is maybe not true anymore. I was wondering if there's anything that in, in recent years, there was something that you believed about teaching and learning that you've actually done a bit of a flip on. You said, actually, I don't think that's true anymore. I think that this other idea is true. Is there anything you've changed your mind about? There's many times I have changed my mind and it hasn't been about instruction because I walked down this path 55 years on the same path towards learning. And what do we know about it? Now, have those I, some of those things been polished? Oh, yes. I mean, I just shared one with you. I watched the videos and found that instead of telling children in high school to think about an answer, to actually write it down and prepare, that the quality of answers went up significantly. So that is a polish, but it wasn't to say that students shouldn't make responses. So it is like walking down this path and saying, okay, we've done that and we can do it better. We've done that and we can do it better. And also what I have found is that because your country, like our country, is struggling with equity across all students. And so many times when I walk down that path to bring about equity, we have to take a good practice and polish it into an equitable practice. Can I give you an example? So we tell teachers that when the students are writing something down, you need to circulate and monitor. Okay, so many teachers circulate in the classroom, but they don't look at the actual work or have students explain it as they monitor. And so they need to polish it and make it intentional monitoring. 
But then this child missed it, this child missed it, this child missed it, this child missed it. Well, are you going to adjust your lesson and say, ooh, pencils down, back up here, look at me, let me teach this again. See, that is equitable. It is polishing up the practice so it makes a difference in terms of learning. So, you know, as long as as we don't go with what sounds wonderful and we go with what makes a difference, I mean, we can look at Australian researchers in education. We can look at British educators. We can look across the country at totally different groups who've come to the same conclusions of what needs to occur if learning is going to be the outcome. Hmm. So you said um, you hadn't changed your mind so much about anything instruction related. Is there anything broader that you have changed your mind about? I feel like you were kind of hinting at something there. Mm, interesting. Tell you, uh, this is kind of a deep question because certainly the COVID and some of the things that are happening in the United States is making me be very, very aware of the structural racism in the United States and in Australia, the caste system that is not necessarily, I mean, is visible, but not necessarily articulated all the time. And so I'm much more thoughtful about this. And so I think we all, in all areas of our life, you know, I've been involved in civil rights since I was in college, but really looking at the inequities of our society, I don't think I looked as deep as I have, and that's continuing. So there's many areas of my life that I'm on the same path, but more information comes in and I grow and learn just like you're doing, Oliver. I mean, watching all, having all these interviews must be just polishing you up in terms of instruction. Yeah, it's amazing. It's definitely been the the the, the most amazing thing I could possibly have done. I feel for my for my professional knowledge, like to have access to best thinkers in the world like yourself and Nita, and be able to first read your work, but then actually ask ask you questions and go deeper. It's just a phenomenal privilege that I'm so grateful to have had. Um, and to be able to share over the last five years. Well, and I know that the people who listen, because you have been very consistent in getting people who could take them down a path and polish up their practice. Yes. Thanks, Anita. Thanks for supporting supportive words. Um, is there is is there a and this might be relates to your last the answer to your last question that you respond to, but um, is there anything within education that you're particularly worried about at the moment? You know, I'm worried. Every time I watch a video and the teacher's present, the students are present, and learning is not present, I'm worried. I am worried every time we leave the path of the outcome to learning and what we know about it and don't put the time into putting that into practice. To me, it is not unsimilar what's happening in the United States of people who get a vaccination based on science and then argue against it and don't. I'm concerned about that. I think that knowledge, facts, science, we must embrace it. We must embrace it. And it, I mean, when we're talking about lives in vaccines, but we're talking lives in learning. So I, I am concerned. And then I'm also concerned that teachers have never been given the highest regard that is necessary. I think Australia has attempted to do some things to great to have more honoring of the teaching as a profession, but not universally across our world. And to do it well it takes uh, preparation, it takes energy every day, it takes passion to make it make it really work. 
it takes constantly polishing up your practice, usually collaboratively with other groups or your group of teachers working on it. It's a, a demanding profession. You know, I had an attorney I was recently talking to, and I said, well, you know, some teachers. And I said, okay, let's just do a little rundown. They go to work from this time to this time, okay? And could you step out anytime you wanted as an attorney? Oh, yeah, I could. Teachers can't. Is, are there some day where you didn't have to do any preparation for your day? Well, occasionally. And could you go out for lunch uh, for any a reasonable amount of time, like, you know, an hour? Well, teachers can't. I mean, you know, it's just, <laughs> and he said, oh, my God, I hadn't thought about that. And I said, do you have a child? And he said, oh, I have three, and that's enough. I said, how would you like to have 28? <laughs> you know, it's, we just, uh, we need uh, much, much bigger respect for the service we give to both countries, the service we give to families so that the parents can work, the service that we give to children to have a safe and welcoming and kind place to go to every day. I like how you turned that question, which was uh, which was about worries, into into a positive one at the end there, Anita. That was a that was a that was a great one. That's sort of my, you know, that's the way I look at life. Yeah, that's awesome. Speaking of advice, what what advice would you give to your first year teacher self? You know, I you made me really think about that, and I wrote down. I had to really think first year teachers, and let me just locate my answer because. I thought about it last night and then thought about it again this morning. Okay. So if I had first-year teachers, we sort of hit this a little bit with uh, Jones's question. What do you think is the most important aspect of explicit instruction to teach to beginning teachers? And I said that learning is the outcome and teaching is the path. But I want to add something to that. And then I would teach them, you know, the content, the design, the delivery, and the practice. What are the big ideas from instruction that you're going to keep adding to as you go through your career? But I have to tell you, we have to couple it with a good body of knowledge on management. I'm sure you've had some people do your webinars on management. So I just wrote down the three I teach to all beginning teachers and the basic ideas about management. First one, if you expect it, pre-correct it. If you expect it, pre-correct it. What's that mean? Because almost always you know that this activity is going to lead to off-test behavior, uh, that uh, students will come to class without materials that they need. If they come into class, you know, so if you expect it, take care of it before it ever occurs. Do not wait to be uh, reactive, be proactive. Number two. Avoid the void, for they will fill it. Avoid the void, for they will fill it. Boy, we see these in these videos. Every time the teacher gives too much time and the students don't have anything to do, out come the phones in high school. Out comes uh, disruptions. Out come, you know. And I saw this when I did demonstration lessons uh, in Australia. So be ready to teach all the way, bell to bell, uh, with your students. And the third one, predictability predicts ability. Predictability, predictability, have routines in place, have procedures in place that are done again and again and again so kids know how to respond in your class. So it is a combination. We do need to do both. Teach them the absolute basics of good instruction, which will reduce management problems, but then teach them ideas and how to carry them out. You've got some excellent people in your country and some excellent work on management, but it needs to be both. 
So those are my three that I wrote down if I was going to teach, because you really made me think about it. What would you teach beginning teachers? Ah, appreciate you. Learning is the outcome. Teaching is the path. That's great. That's such a, such a crucial key point there, Anita. I've got to ask, where are you usually when you come up with your great one-liners? Do you have like a, a, back, a seat on your back porch where you kind of stare off into the distance and, and come up with these catchy phrases or, or where, how, do you, how do you do it? But, you know, it's, it's an intentionality. It's like, well, sometimes I will say something and then say, oh, i got to write that one down. That one worked. Mm. But it's taking, you know, it's, it's what you do in math. It's what every teacher uh, does. Here we have a complex body of knowledge. Now, our job is not to make it more complex. Our job is to bring it down to you can take it in. It's no cognitive overload and you can utilize it. But all the years I taught at universities, the people in my classes remember these forever. So I was given an award for the state of Oregon uh, as an educator for the state. Uh, And people from all three universities that I had taught at came from Washington State, California, and they sent in archerisms. And some of them I'd had like 50 years ago. And, you know, you won't forget, I do it, we do it, you do it. Teach the stuff and cut the fluff. You remembered it. Yeah, that's great. So it is, it is, if I have an intent that you learn it, then I have to have an intent to make it, to memorialize it as a way to remember it. Mm. I think it's a, I mean, that in itself is a really, really valuable takeaway. Yeah. Love it. Putting it's kind of putting in the time to plan, plan in such a way that it's really going to be as memorable as possible is is crucial. Um, three book recommendations or, or more if you, if you so will. Of course. I might recommend Explicit Instruction by Dr. Anita Archer and Charles Hughes, Effective and Efficient Teaching. Now, some that I, I don't know, maybe have you read Powerful Teaching? I haven't. Who's that one by? This one, and I'm going to mispronounce her name because it is Indian, P-O-O-J-A, and her last name is A-G-A-R-W-A-L. Okay, anyway, and... Uh, I'm just searching it, <laughs> sorry. Yeah, Patrice Bain. Okay, so you may have followed the website, explicitinstruction.org. So they're cognitive scientists. One is a professor, one is a teacher, and basically they talk about retrieval practice activities within the classroom. And I like this book particularly because you as a secondary teacher of older kids Many of the books on instruction have mostly examples that are elementary, not secondary, and this one has mostly examples that are secondary. Now, I know the people that are likely to come on your podcast, many of them are interested in literacy, and this book that is an edited book, the first author is uh, David Kilpatrick, Reading Development and Difficulties. This is an excellent book because of the reviews of research, very, very good reviews on how to teach vocabulary. What do we know from research? How should we teach foundation skills? What should we do with English language learners? So the reviews are excellent. Now, when I work in Queensland, one of the books that they were utilizing in another area of interest to your participants was on writing. And so they had a all across Queensland, they were working on one sentence at a time based on the work in The Writing Revolution by Judith Hockman. And it is probably one of the most pragmatic books uh, on writing to have available in your 
books. Mm, that's great. And if listeners want to listen to a podcast on that one, I had had Judy on on episode 29 of the ECRR podcast and we went into a fair bit of detail there as well. So, yeah, absolutely love that book. Excellent. So Judith Hockman did it. Yeah. He did one website for you. Beautiful. Well, unfortunately, because he is no longer living, you cannot add Graham Nuthall. This is for instruction nerds. So you read this book, but Graham Nuthall wrote The Hidden Lives of Learners, and it has a very unique perspective because they looked at the behaviors of students, not teachers, and so analyzed what do students have to do in order for them to learn something and have it in permanent memory and be able to retrieve it and remember it. And uh, he really wrote this on his deathbed, literally. And the last chapter was written by his colleagues. But it reminded us that learning is rarely a one-shot affair. Single, isolated experience seldom give birth to learning. What creates or shapes learning is a sequence of events or experience, each one building on the effects of the previous one. By studying the continuous experiences of individual students, Graham Nuthall showed us that the accumulation of at least three different sets of complete information about a concept makes a difference between a concept that is never quite learned and one that is firmly connects to and integrates the previous knowledge and hence is learned and remembered. The summary of his book on page 155. So those I pulled out of a big library of the ones right now. If you haven't read them, you'd enjoy all of them. Fantastic. And we'll put links to all those books in the show notes for listeners as well. Thank you. Anita, what are you most excited about at the moment? First of all, I am very excited about the fact that more people are interested in explicit instruction. I mean, really. I mean, I daily get, can you come to our state? Can you come to our country? Can you come to? So I'm very excited about a significant interest in the relationship of teaching to learning. And that is definitely happening. Okay. You know, I'm also kind of uh, interested in like what we're doing, how technology is allowing us to share knowledge across the world. Now, having done since January, 150 webinars, a little bit more. We haven't really counted them up on my calendar, but about that many. Some of them were 200 people. One was 22,000. You know, the power of technology is very great. You know, what's, what's lovely about my life is that, that I love instruction. I love teachers. I love what I do. But then something comes your way and it's just a little thing but it polishes up your vision of good instruction and changes and polishes up that aspect. I'll just tell you, like, so I'm talking to a colleague and I'm talking about corrections. When there's an obvious answer, we usually guide the students to the correct answer by repeating the item. Okay. And she said, well, Anita, I don't think I've ever shared with you the study that we did with hundreds of children, which found that we should actually, no matter what the situation is, tell them the answer, then guide them to it. So they know where they're going. I said, really? And see, that that lights my fire. I mean, that's a simple change. You made an error. I'm going to guide you to the correct answer. You made an error. I'm going to tell you the answer so you know where you're going. And then I'm going to lead us back through so that you see the steps that would get you there. See, so it's those little things that, those little details that excite me. Fantastic. And any, any last calls to action or things you'd like listeners to go away today and do, Anita? So when I read that question, I'll just end it 
because that is the ending of our time together, which has been a total delight. Oliver, I'm going to have to be start listening to your podcast. And I can't wait to come back to Australia, a country I highly regard and highly respect. But there's been two mottos that have taken me from my first teaching. How well you teach equals how well they learn. And it is an equation. It's true. How well you teach, never forget, is how well they learn. But the other was given to me by a child one day. I was doing demonstrations in Salinas, California, and I went out to recess. It was beautiful weather. I wanted to see what they were playing, and this boy ran across the field. And he'd been in the fourth grade that I had just been in. And I said, hi. He said, I want to tell you, if there was a contest for teachers, you'd win it. And I said, now, what were you thinking about? Why did you say that? He said, well, you teach with passion, you manage with compassion. Is that not a motto that could carry every teacher, every educator? Teach with passion, and may you absolutely manage with compassion. That's great. Anita Archer, thank you so much for your time today. It's been a, a total privilege to have you on, someone with your experience and expertise, and also your reach and the influence that you've had on education over the years is phenomenal. Just to speak with the originator of the I do, we do, you do is, is really great. And even though, as I mentioned, I've done a lot of exploration into explicit instruction over the years, and even listened to the podcast would have heard lots of people speak about it in the past, there's still lots I've, I've taken away from our discussion today. So some, some of the key takeaways for me are, I really liked your definition of explicit instruction as something that, you know, people people already recognize it just in terms of the clarity and whether students know what they should be doing or not. I thought that was really powerful. Um, and you added additional nuance and detail to that as well. Another thing is the, the importance of the we do and really emphasizing that that guided practice stage is valuable. And I really, uh, I found the example where you are basically teaching me to be incredibly illustrative of what quality we do, uh, quality we do phase of the lesson can and should look like. Oh, I just needed to be a little, do a little more preparation before, and you got me on that one. That's okay. <laughs> that that's fine. okay. Well, that, I mean, that was a perfect lesson in itself on the importance of preparation. And even on someone, an expert like yourself with 55 years of instruction, preparation is still key. So I think that's a great lesson for all of us. Your emphasis on the continual refinement of the ideas of explicit instruction and the research over the years, I think, is valuable in seeing seeing um, educational knowledge as as a body of knowledge that develops in the same way as any other body of knowledge does. Hopefully, in a kind of scientific way over the years. Something else you emphasise is learning as the goal, and that's something you came up that was part of two of your answers and perhaps even more but really just seeing our job is to help students to learn more and we're successful teachers to the extent that we support that that additional learning i think is really valuable there's you know there's other guests i've had on who've who've emphasized other traits like character which i think is valuable and students independent learning skills and things like that which is which is also crucial but i think also particularly for beginning teachers which is where you also emphasize it just helping them to see the success of their teaching in terms of learning that occurs from it how you teach equals equals what they what they learn i think is really valuable and then yeah finally just the, the the point that you ended on there yourself Anita, passion and compassion. You're someone who's clearly managed to maintain this passion for teaching and learning for, for a long, long and very successful career. But also I can see, you know, one of the questions I had, which I didn't end up asking because there were a few we had to leave out just because of time. One of, one of the questions I had that I'd planned to ask was, why do you think your work has had such an impact over the years? And through speaking with you today, the answer that I would have for that is 
it's the compassion for teachers and your desire to help your desire it seems like there's this intrinsic real coming from within desire just to be helpful for teachers and just to be helpful you know for me in this conversation today and the the preparation you did even though you've got such a busy schedule and so many other competing things on your time you know you spent time last night thinking about how you could um, in a most supportive and helpful way answer all my questions today share your knowledge and things like that so it's that spirit of sharing that i think has has really carried your work forwards um over the years and something that i hope to hope to and uh, attempt to emulate myself that spirit of sharing and so i really thank you for that anita and thank you for your time today and really look forward to uh, many more years of fantastic work from you thank you so much it was really a delight uh so aussies Goodbye, and thank you for letting me enter your world for just this moment. Thanks, Anita. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast with Dr. Anita Archer. If you're keen on a summary of this episode of the ERRR podcast or 100% off or 50% off the forthcoming ERRR book, please remember to jump onto patreon.com forward slash ERRR to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. And as always, if you enjoyed this episode, then please do share it with friends and colleagues. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.